This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the July 21st edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm joined today by Ambassador Dick Bowers, Dr. Breck Walker, and Dr. Charles Womack. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Womack from, from Cookville. And uh, I, I think everyone uh, of our News Review uh, fans are familiar with uh, Breck and uh, Dick. So let me introduce uh, Chuck to, uh, to everyone. Uh, Dr. Chuck Womack is a member of the board of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. He's a founding member. Uh, back in 2007, when we put the organization together, he was uh, involved in that and has served on the board ever since. He was our first vice president of the council. He's also a physician. He's a member of the Cookville City Council, former two-term member, uh, mayor of uh, Cookville, Tennessee, uh, former principal at uh, Upper Cumberland Urology Associates, former chair of Tennessee Parks and Greenways. Uh, he served as chairman of the Tennessee Medical Association. He's a uh, Vanderbilt undergrad. Uh, he went to uh, medical school at, uh, at Tulane and uh, specialized in uh, urology at LSU. So welcome, uh, Chuck, to our program today. Glad to be with y'all. So uh, let's uh, start with our, uh, our five topics that we'll be uh, jumping into today. Dick, uh, what do we got? Well, number one, we're going to talk about the pursuit of a vaccine for COVID-19. And it looks like things are heating up and there's some good news. Second, uh, we'll kind of an overview of COVID-19, what's going on and what are the numbers show and what's happening in the world. And then uh, number three is London calling. Huawei, 5G and the West. Number four topic is October surprises. There's a tendency for often in election years, especially for all of a sudden something to happen. We'll talk about that. And the fifth and final topic is the end of the of world order and American foreign policy, which is a Council on Foreign Relations special report, which is most interesting, but basically talks about where are we going and what is COVID doing to the world. So those are the five, Pat. All right, before we get into uh, our five topics, let's uh, uh, turn to uh, Breck, and he's got the uh, What in the World weekly quiz question. Breck? Thanks, Pat. Again, the uh, question this week, I just want to remind everybody that this question is also uh, accessible on the TINWAC website as well. Uh, it, it is available on the newsletter that comes out every Monday at 10 a.m. And uh, every month, the weekly scores, the weekly winner is eligible for uh, uh, a special prize. So I, uh, you do have to be a member of TINWAC to access that prize, but I certainly encourage everybody to participate. So the question this week is, an advisory published by the UK National Cybersecurity Center warns of activity by a hacking group uh, targeting US, UK, and Canadian coronavirus vaccine research organizations. The APT29 hackers, which were tied to 2016 US election interference, are linked to this country's intelligence agency. And the possible answers are A, Iran, B, North Korea, C, Russia, and D, China. And we will have the answer at the end of the program. 
Thanks, Pat. Great. Thanks, uh, Breck. And uh, this week, no Arabic or Bulgarian names to, uh, <laughs> to read off the screen there. Uh, let's jump right into uh, our first topic, which is uh, the COVID update. Um, we've, uh, we've got our numbers to, to look at uh, over the week. And you can see the increase uh, from uh, July 14th to July 21st. Uh, we've uh, jumped from 13.3 million total cases in the world to 14.8, uh, uh, pushing 15 million. Uh, deaths uh, worldwide are now up to 613,000. Uh, the United States, with 4% of the global population, uh, is now uh, leading the world in total cases uh, and total deaths. You can see the numbers there. Uh, I guess some of the things, some of the countries we should mention here, you know, Italy had had an awful uh, experience with COVID, and they're uh, they're in the, the number 14 spot, but this is not adjusted for a population. So that's, uh, for them, still they, they went through uh, uh, quite a, uh, an awful time as well as Spain. Um, Iran had a, was the epicenter for the Middle East, so you can see where they rank on the global numbers. It's interesting, I found that um, China had as uh, few cases uh, as they had being the uh, the global epicenter of this, uh, but they uh, they quickly locked down and and uh, their their cases reflect the the actions that they took. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Chuck Womack to uh, to also comment on uh, the global numbers and and we're looking at uh, uh, the the United States case here. Uh, we're up to uh, 3.9 million cases and 143,000 deaths in the United States. You can see the total death uh, chart uh, indicates that total deaths uh, uh, continue to rise at uh, uh, a dangerous level and the, the de total daily deaths uh, after hitting a peak in, uh, in April and uh, coming down somewhat, uh, we've seen that in July, uh, we've had a couple of spikes and the uh, looking at the infection rate uh, in the United States, it, it uh, uh, it probably follows that uh, those spikes will continue uh, through July into August. So the summer break that, that some people thought uh, would arrive in the Northern Hemisphere uh, hasn't uh, appeared in North America, at least in uh, the United States. Uh, Chuck, any comments on, uh, on the, the cases or, or death numbers here? Uh, yes, it still appears to be we're in our first wave, particularly in the South. We haven't had the second wave uh, like the 1918 uh, flu pandemic. Uh, we're hitting all the states like Texas, Arizona, Florida, and, and the Southeastern states. That's where the cases are. Tennessee has been uh, uh, good on testing, and it's had a lower death rate than the uh, other southeastern states. So we're still uh, rising and it's estimated that we may have over 200,000 uh, cases by the end of, no by, excuse me, by the beginning of November of this year. Now we've, uh, we've seen that a lot of places, including uh, Nashville, are rolling back the uh, openings. Uh, I heard today that uh, Mayor Cooper has said that uh, restaurants that serve alcohol are gonna have to close down uh, to cease uh, those operations. So with the increase in these these cases, um, we're seeing that the municipalities and states are uh, increasing the uh, the measures to to deal with it. Uh, Chuck, do you, do you have any thoughts on um, the uh, the availability of uh, testing and tracing relative to the, the number of cases? There's, there's still a, an active debate about the uh, whether we do enough tests, or whether we, we uh, have effective tracing, those kinds of things? 
Like right now, we're doing uh, 600 to 700,000 uh, tests a day. Uh, they, it's been stated that we need to get up to about 2 million to have a handle on tracing uh, people. Uh, right now, there's so much community spread in the southeastern states. Uh, you can get a handle on it up in the northeast and, and New York and Vermont, New Hampshire and Connecticut, uh, where they're, they're doing enough testing. But here in the South, it's just dramatic, uh, the, the number of cases that are appearing. It's, you know, we're talking about 70,000. Dr. Fauci talked about going upwards of 100,000 cases uh, in, the, in the very near future if we continue. Our cases, cases per day. Cases per day. Uh, the best way to follow this is your seven-day moving average. Uh, they have that statistic out. And if you look at the seven-day average, it, it uh, straightens out the, the bumps from over-reporting and under-reporting on, on a daily basis. Now, the CDC was the belly button for all these reports, and, and uh, in the past week there's been uh, uh, news, news reports that suggest that uh, the White House is ordering a change in reporting to HHS rather than the CDC. Any thoughts on what that might do with the public availability of data? Well, hopefully it will get better. Uh, the problem is that uh, we have different reporting systems in most all of the states. Every state's a little bit different in, in their uh, reporting in an individual hospital. And sometimes it has antigen uh, testing and sometimes it has the PCR uh, testing and sometimes a combination. And hopefully this uh, new method of reporting straight to the HHS and going to the White House they can iron that out. I don't know that they will, but hopefully they can. Uh, Chuck, can I ask a question? I, I was tested, and it took eight days for me to get my results back. Now, I, my understanding... getting tested. That's right, because I could be raging yes. full of virus, and I don't know it. And well, you know, so the turnaround time is critical, as well as the testing, right? right? The CDC has guidelines out, uh, and... Uh, to get back to you within 48 hours. That's the optimal. If, if and you, then you can do contact tracing, but if beyond that. time is 48 hours, you can do contact uh, tracing. If it's eight days, it's worth it. Well, so Pat, what about on the international arena, all these countries that have uh, real troubles, I, like Bolivia, I was checking on them and there was an interesting fact that popped out that down in Santa Cruz in the lower out levels, their cases are about three or four times what there is in the very high altitudes. Very high altitudes, there's not as much infection. And I'm just wondering if there's some biological connection there, Dr. Womack, between height, does the virus react to it? Well, there's probably some other variables there. I would, I would suspect that uh, the more remote, there's uh, less infiltration of infections from outside the, those communities and, and probably less social distancing issues. La Paz is at 12,000, 13,000. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Okay. Well, then. As opposed to Santa Cruz, which is down about five or 600. Then I, then I will stop playing doctor on webinar. <laughs> anyway, uh, so there's a lot of data out there to be mined, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to roll right into uh, topic two, which uh, is uh, is connected to our COVID numbers. And, and, uh, Dr. Womack is going to take the lead on this, and we've got a couple of slides talking about the timeline, and then he's going to get into uh, a couple of the uh, Journal of American Medical Association, Medical Association articles that uh, he'd like to talk about. Chuck? 
Well, this slide right here shows the whole thing as far as the United States is concerned. Uh, we're the top of the curve, the, uh, the clear of the white area. And, and you can see dramatically in the last several weeks how it's, it's, it's grown dramatically in the uh, U.S., particularly in the Southeast, as I was alluding to earlier. And, and that's just uh, devastating. The number of people who went out around Memorial Day after the uh, lockdown was lessened in the uh, Southeastern states really made a difference. The contact there. The cases are all younger. Uh, the average age going into the hospital now is in the early 40s, and it's contrasted with 65 in New York uh, back during uh, March. But And so they're not quite as sick, and they're able to uh, uh, live. And so the death rate is down to some extent because of the younger population. So, but we're really rising, and, uh, uh, and eventually the the uh, it'll get to the older people over 65 and that's where you get your mortality rates. Uh, right now, if you're over 85 and you catch it, there's a one in three chance you'll die. Uh, so uh, in contrast with people uh, under 20, there's practically uh, nil that you'll uh, have a mortality rate from that. So uh, it, it, uh, the younger people are getting it, they're in close contact, there's not been masking, uh, which has been recommended uh, by the CDC. Uh, Dr. Redfield had an editorial one week ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association saying uh, that it's our civic duty, everyone out in the public uh, way to mask. It protects you and uh, protects you uh, because some of the, aeros uh, not the aerosol, but some of the droplet particles, of, of, which is the primary way that the COVID is spread, are filtered out by the mask. So there's some protection for you, but there's more protection for others and your mask stops asymptomatic spread. And so uh, Dr. Redfield stated a week ago that if everyone, you know, which is about 80%, if you can get 80% of the U.S. wearing masks in public, you could really slow the transmission down and practically stop it, uh, hopefully get the R, R value under one. Chuck, did, uh, did you want to make any comments about the, uh, the slide, the timeline of... Uh... Oh, oh, I wanted to talk about the timeline, Ex excuse me. It's six months and one day since our first case here in the United States. You know, obviously the uh, first cases were talked about in China back in December. We got our first cases here in the uh, U.S., and uh, it's just uh, been a, a drive. Uh, uh, we didn't uh, we didn't use the testing widely for about six weeks. Uh, it was just people who had been to China, and we had bad tests uh, to some extent, and so that set us up for a perfect storm. Uh, right now, as I said, the testing is six seven hundred thousand. Uh, day, but the uh, CDC and other experts, uh, epidemiology experts, recommend that we get it up to 200, uh, excuse me, to 2 million a day minimum to, and some people are saying now 5 million a day in testing to really uh, uh, follow up and clamp down on the people that are exposed. 
So we've got a we've got a problem. It's doable. The uh, U.S. needs to be uh, the the vaccine. We were talking uh, about the vaccines that are being uh, over 122 vaccine uh, uh, consortiums or develops the Oxford vaccine, Moderna, out of the U.S. Uh, but all the big pharmaceuticals, Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, who's working with Oxford, uh, you've got Pfizer, all the are working on vaccines. They're, they're starting phase three clinical trials. And if they're exposed to enough uh, people, because half the people in these clinical trials are going to be getting placebo. And if the placebo uh, people get the infection and the people who, uh, uh, have the uh, vaccine from Moderna or from Oxford or from the other in phase three, you can pretty rapidly find out if it's uh, doing its job and working. Uh, there's evidence that the Oxford has pretty good antibody. The Chinese vaccine is not as robust as the Oxford. So uh, hopefully we will have something by the end of the year, beginning of next year, and maybe by the early fall, if if uh, the clinical trials with in the neighborhood of 30,000 people are involved, start to show signs of success. They're gearing up right now. Uh, the government is is already paying for the manufacture of all, of all these vaccines that are put in storage. And if they turn out to not work very well, they're just gonna write the money off. But Corning is making vials, other companies are making syringes. We're trying the Operation Warp Speed, OWS, is the big thing that's uh, being pushed by the uh, federal government right now to uh, have a vaccine that's out by the end of the year. I heard on the news last night that uh, the U.S. government is putting $1.2 billion into the Oxford uh, study alone. Oh, yes, and they're spending um, amounts of money with Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, uh, AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca is the U.S. representative for the Oxford uh, uh, vaccine, and, and so they're, they're, they're making it as we speak. They just don't know if it works. So is, I, this just, is this just for us, or are we going to share with the rest of the world? Oh, that's the big thing by the WHO. Uh, they're trying to have an equitable sharing of the vaccine. Britain is getting 100 million doses uh, in, with the Oxford vaccine, and uh, the U.S. Is, is, is working on getting several hundred million and they're trying to set up a, a standard where the vaccine is, is shared equitably. And it'll go first to healthcare providers and then second to the vulnerable population. And then the general public will be third, but they'll try to get the healthcare providers and the vulnerable population first before it goes out uh, in any of the countries to the uh, general population. Well, the Chinese are also uh, uh, headlong into research on a vaccine. There's a company called CanSino, C-A-N-S-I-N-O Biologics, um, that reported out the same day as the Oxford study did. So this is uh, a global pursuit. It's um, got a lot of contenders, I think, uh, scores of, uh, of possible uh, research efforts that are, that are going to this. So uh, as I understand, if everything goes well, uh, we could uh, by the end of August know whether there'll be one of these contenders uh, that's uh, safe and effective. Is that, does that sound right, Chuck? Uh, no, the clinical trials are starting and it'll take several months to get enough data 
from the 30,000, roughly 30,000 people who get the uh, vaccine oracle SIBO to see uh, who's getting sick and who's not getting sick. Okay. But is this it, all, is this all going to play into uh, domestic politics where some candidate can say, see, I told you so. We, we, we got this licked. Um, <laughs> say that as a possibility. Yeah. Anything going on in the world, Dick, is, is suspect, uh, subject to uh, American politics. Um, uh, you know, Chuck, you were talking about the uh, the trials. Uh, I understand that uh, some of these trials are going to be in Brazil and South Africa. Uh, yes, they're doing international trials, not just the U.S. And uh, but that's the Oxford uh, vaccine. Uh, the Oxford vaccine is probably the one most further along at at the present. But Moderna is is uh, having uh, good antibody reactions, and they're going to be drawing blood on, on all of these people to make sure that it's producing enough neutralizing antibodies and the T cells are activated and uh, for exposure to the COVID virus. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep our eye on that, certainly. And um... One other thing, real quickly, is the monoclonal antibodies. That is the hot new thing that may be out in the next two or three months, uh, that monoclonal antibodies, which you can be given uh, as an infusion to uh, people that are exposed and to people in the early stages that it may be a thing to do as a stopgap until we get the vaccine. Okay, well, we'll keep our eye on all that reporting. Let's uh, move on to topic three. Breck, uh, you're bringing us uh, Huawei 5G in the West, and it seems that you can't go through a week's worth of news without um, <laughs> ha ha having to wade through uh, COVID and China. Uh, so here's our China piece. You're on. Okay. Well, thanks, Pat. The uh, The Economist magazine recently posed what I thought was an important, very 21st century foreign policy question. Should a goal of U.S. foreign policy be to hobble or even restrain China's technological and economic rise? And if you took that question a layer down, we might ask, how do we in the West do business with a technology superpower whose products could possibly pose risks to our national security and whose values are fundamentally opposed to our own? Or even more specifically, are we in the West willing to trust a Chinese company with our 5G networks? Now, the answer to this question gets even more complicated because the question really is, should the West boycott Chinese 5G technology when that technology is superior to anything else out there, when the rollout of that technology using the Chinese company would be much, much quicker, the cost would be considerably lower in comparison to alternatives, and the result of a Western boycott will undoubtedly be economic reprisals for China, from China. So uh, that's a lot to talk about, and hopefully I'll be very brief about it, and then we can all talk about it together. But uh, I guess the first question I wanted to start with is what is 5G wireless technology? Now, unfortunately, my knowledge about this is both an inch wide and an inch deep, but from the very biggest picture, 5G wireless technology is characterized by absolutely blazing speed, transmission of uh, information. It supposedly gets up to 100 times faster uh, than 4G technology, which means it's almost instantaneous delivery, data delivery. 
So that kind of performance is necessary for lots of artificial intelligence applications. It's essential for driverless cars, linked robotic, uh, robotic factories to really, uh, to really take off. So um, uh, 5G promises this huge expansion of connected devices, what uh, the experts call the internet of things where almost every device in our home and businesses will be, in our homes and businesses will be connected. So 5G promises to, to change the way we live and work in the world uh, down the road. It's still in its fairly early stages of development. Uh, there'll be no meaningful rollout earlier probably than 2025. There are plenty of people out there that think the technology is a little overhyped but the economic potential for companies is huge uh, in terms of uh, future revenue. Now, right now, there are three uh, telecom equipment companies that dominate this early stage of the 5G market, and they are uh, Huawei from China, Ericsson from Sweden, and Samsung from South Korea. Uh, ZTE, which is a Chinese company, is a distant uh, fourth. Uh, those four control about two-thirds of the uh, 5G market today, with uh, Huawei having about half of that. And regrettably, there is no American competitor on the 5G wireless network manufacturing side. Uh, there are American companies that provide components that uh, the big four use in their networks, but we do not have a company that is a network a provider on the 5G side that is of any consequence, at least right now. So who is Huawei? Well, it's a Chinese company founded in 1987 by uh, Ren uh, Zhuenfei. He's a former officer in the Chinese Army's engineering group, and he's a current member of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Now, Huawei is the largest manufacturer of telecom equipment in general, after Ericsson, uh, Ericsson is the second. It is also the second largest manufacturer of smartphones after Samsung and ahead of Apple. And as I said, it's dominant in the 5G network space from a technology and pricing perspective. It had revenues in 2019 of approximately $120 billion. It has some 200,000 employees worldwide. And over the last few years, it sold products into more than, and often mobile phone products, but sold products into more than uh, 170 countries. It's a privately held company and supposedly employee owned but there is not much transparency to what its ownership structure uh, actually is. There's no uh, public official data uh, on that. Now the telecom sector for China, the Chinese government has deemed that sector to be strategically vital uh, to the nation. And that has resulted in the Chinese government as it does with other companies that it determines to be strategically vital. It's given a considerable amount of aid to Huawei to make sure over time that it becomes a world-class company, and certainly uh, it has. Now that aid takes the form of government grants. There's some reports that maybe Huawei received as much as $200 billion from the Chinese government uh, in 2019 for research and development. It gets uh, very low interest, rates, interest rate loans from Chinese banks. And those banks also provide very attractive financing terms to purchasers, to foreign purchasers of Huawei uh, equipment. So for Huawei, this Chinese, this Chinese governmental help has uh, resulted in much larger research budgets than it otherwise probably would have, a big technology lead over the competition and the ability to price uh, competition uh, out of the market. And just as an example of that, 
not so long ago, Huawei underbid the Swedish firm Ericsson by 60% to provide the network equipment for the national 5G network of uh, Netherlands. And you'd think that the Chinese government subsidies had quite a bit to, uh, to do with that, with, with the ability to do that. And so right now, Huawei, this Chinese company, is the highest quality, lowest price producer of 5G network equipment. So what's the foreign policy issue surrounding this uh, very impressive Chinese company? Well, in the first instance, the United States has for more than a decade asserted that Huawei is kind of an outlaw company, that it's regularly engaged in stealing technology from the West, and that it, and that it has on several occasions evaded, evaded US sanctions and sold products to Iran. But much more than that, the US, the United States worries that if the West adopts Huawei's 5G networks, that the Chinese government will be able to use those systems to spy on the West and could use those systems to disrupt our critical infrastructure in future confrontations. Now, again, the promise of 5G, as I said, is this blinding speed, almost instantaneous transmission that will prove to be integral to the West infrastructure down the road. Public utilities will use it, communication networks will use it, transportation networks will use it. You get the picture, I think. And this represents a national vulnerability. Whomever has access to those systems could do a lot of damage to those systems. And the United States fears the Chinese government will have access to Huawei systems. Now, Huawei and Mr. Ren have been very public saying that that would never happen, that they would never spy for the Chinese government. And I would note that Mr. Ren is not saying that the capability to do that is not there. He's just saying they won't do it. And it's true that there's no evidence uh, that, that uh, any spying has taken place to date, although again, we're in the very early, early stages of 5G uh, rollout. But uh, the Trump administration, even the Obama administration, Congress and the wider Intel community, of course, are not buying those denials, <laughs> maybe in part because of our own recent experiences in our government forcing telecom providers to turn over certain kinds of information. Uh, but the United States is taking steps, the Trump administration is taking serious steps to prevent Huawei from uh, dominating the 5G market uh, in the future. And for example, uh, in 2018, the Trump administration banned the US government from buying any products from Huawei. In the same year, uh, the administration uh, pressured, I, say, I think it's fair to say, AT&T to walk away from a deal to sell Huawei smartphones. In May 2019, the Commerce Department put Huawei on its entity list, which bans Huawei from buying US products without government permission. And that list, uh, companies go on that list when they're engaged in activities that the US government has determined would be contrary to the national security uh, of the US. And so Huawei's networks, networks require them, right now at least, to buy a lot of equipment from US manufacturers that go into their products, so software, chips, that kind of stuff. In 2020, the Trump administration has made a real effort to constrain foreign companies from selling key products to Huawei when those companies, when those products have American-made components in them, and the US government is trying to prevent foreign companies from doing that by threatening sanctions if they do uh, sell them products that sell Huawei products that have uh, US, uh, that have US components. Washington is also, and this has been in the news very recently, has been pressuring uh, Western allies and 
uh, Eastern allies for that matter, to prevent Huawei from, from developing their 5G infrastructure. And so uh, threatening in one instance to, to stop sharing intelligence with countries that use uh, Huawei equipment. And so far, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan have, for all practical purposes, banned Huawei from building their 5G networks. And the UK uh, has been under intense pressure from the USA. And just last week, uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, reversed himself and banned uh, UK mobile operators from using Huawei equipment for their 5G networks. And not only that, uh, mandated that all previously installed Huawei equipment on those networks, 4G networks, for example, must be removed by 2027. And in June, uh, telecom companies in Canada and Singapore announced plans for uh, 5G networks using Ericsson and uh, Nokia. And uh, the, Fran the French government is advising its network operators there not to use Huawei if they have not already done so. Uh, the big question is Germany. And Germany has not made a decision yet and will decide uh, what manufacturer they're going to go with sometime this fall. So I guess on this, I would make the following quick uh, comments and then open it up for uh, discussion. It does seem to me that the Trump administration has made considerable prog progress in hobbling Huawei in its plan to become the dominant supplier of 5G networks to the West. The big test on that will be what Germany decides this fall. Uh, there is some concern among our allies and in the press that Trump might, reserve, might reverse this very hardline approach he's taken on Huawei if he gets a favor, favorable trade deal from uh, Chinese President Xi. And uh, we'll see on that. That could be uh, a last minute October surprise, uh, perhaps, uh, <laughs> anticipation of the election. Uh, my uh, next point would be the impact of all this uh, machination on global free trade remains to be seen. There are plenty of American businesses who sell products to Huawei who are going to lobby for compromise. And China is definitely going to extract a price from those nations that shun Huawei. That's already happening in the case of the UK. So trade protectionism may be further uh, on the rise uh, in the future. And with this being perhaps the first step and it spreads to a wider group of products. Uh, it does seem to me that this is an area where it would not be wise to run national security risk, especially with a country like China, a rapidly rising power who does not want to abide by the rules uh, generally accepted by the larger international community. And this vulnerability, if we had Huawei 5G networks, this vulnerability seems unquantifiable and potentially very great. That's another question entirely, if we should uh, use diplomacy to try and restrain Chinese companies in the technology area in their future growth and profitability. I suspect that there are likely good arguments on both sides of that question, but adopting that tack would certainly envision a different world order than that envisioned by George H.W. Bush with the demise of the Soviet Union, and it might result, and this isn't my phrase, uh, uh, but it's the economist phrase, but it might result in a sort of technological iron curtain that could divide the world economically uh, in a way similarly, in a way similar to what, uh, to how the world was divided ideologically during the Cold War. So Pat, uh, I guess I opened it up for your all's comments. Well, I, I uh, find this a very interesting topic because it's got so many different dimensions, technology, international relations, trade. 
espionage. Espionage. Uh, I, I think I mentioned to you, Breck, the, the case of the African Union headquarters. The Chinese offered to build a brand new uh, from the ground up headquarters for the African Union, the Regional Association of African Nations, headquartered in the Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And in 2017, it was discovered by some technicians that from midnight until 2 a.m., their data usage was rising precipitously, uh, not tied to anything going on in the headquarters, which was largely empty at, at midnight. Uh, and they, they did some digging around. They found out that at midnight, their servers were doing an automatic data dump to Shanghai. So the, the Chinese uh, uh, generosity in building this uh, headquarters and, and the infrastructure had a backdoor to it. And, you know, uh, we, we talk about uh, apps like TikTok, which is a uh, suspect for being used in a, a malicious way. Um, you know, we've had hacks of the Office of Personnel Management in Washington, in which uh, a couple of million records of federal employees have been scooped up by China. Uh, so I, I think it's uh, proper to be cautious about this because uh, the technology could easily be uh, turned around and, and used uh, against the West and the United States. Dick, uh, you, you've, uh, you've seen it all. What, what are you, what's your impression? I haven't seen it all, Pat. <laughs> I've seen a lot, but I don't know. Well, I think the, you know, there's a, this thing, yeah, your point, that it has so many different dimensions to it. I mean, is, is the U.S. prepared to give up its technological leadership in a critical field in the world? It's one. No, well, we don't, we don't have a player in this, do we? Do we uh, well, so we're giving it up, right? Uh, and we, we could have a player in it if we sort of did like the Chinese did and did a government-private sector partnership and ramped things up like a Manhattan Project and said, we're going to dominate this field. We haven't done that. A second dimension is a, the trade dimension. This is such a big, vital, important component of everybody's economic interest, right? That if the Chinese dominate it, uh, it's going to make a huge difference. And, and they can use leverage to get countries to do things that otherwise they wouldn't want to do. A third is the whole technological side of things and whether communications intelligence or technical intelligence aspects come into play and whether the Chinese build back doors into some of these systems. So that, as you say in Addis Ababa, at two o'clock in the morning, you dump everything off the computers to a database back in China. So it goes on and on. And, and I, I, what's happened is that the United States has put pressure on our allies, it seems to me, to not get involved in this. But uh, our leadership is not as strong as it used to be, and countries are having to decide on their own which way are they going to go and what are they going to do. And the Chinese are probably going to hold out some kind of a reprisal system. Listen, if you don't use this for us, this is going to change our relationships and the way we do trade and things of that sort. So it's a big problem, and I think you've captured it. Very well, little Breck. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, that was that was an excellent uh, presentation, uh, Breck. There was a, a case where a woman who I think she was on the board of Huawei and and she was in Canada. She was arrested by the Canadians supposedly because it was a an American warrant out uh, for her arrest, and that caused a big stir between Canada and China. And there were a couple of Canadians. I believe they're still being held over this uh, I think case. So, yeah. Did, did uh, any of your uh, research into this uh, uncover any of that? 
It did. Uh, the lady, it was the chief financial officer of the company, I believe, of Huawei. And she also, I believe, is the daughter of the founder, Mr. Ren. And uh, she was uh, uh, arrested in Canada on a warrant for arrest coming from the United States. And the charges, among other things, one of the charges or the several charges relating to Huawei avoiding sanction, avoiding fraudulently, fraudulent, fraudulently avoiding uh, trade restrictions against uh, Iran. And uh, she's still, as far as I know, I think she's under, uh, she's not in jail, but she can't leave Canada right now. And she is awaiting a proceeding to see the U.S. has filed for extradition and the Canadian courts uh, have not decided what's going to happen on that yet. But uh, that has caused a, a lot of contention. And there were uh, two Canadian, I believe they were diplomats, but they have two Canadians that were arrested the end of 2019, at the end of 2019 as a tit for tat and are still uh, under arrest in China at this point. It gets uh, more complicated every day. Okay, we're going to uh, take a, a quick break here and uh, get a, a plug in from uh, our sponsor. And I'd just like to uh, mention everybody who's watching either the live version today or our archive version on youtube.com slash TNWAC where you'll find all of our webinars that uh, if you like what we're doing uh, in terms of these programs, these webinars, podcasts, and our other community outreach programs, we invite you to become a member of the World Affairs Council or if you can make a, a financial contribution to what we're doing. Uh, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. Uh, we bring you uh, spectacular uh, guests like uh, today's uh, speakers, uh, Ambassador Bowers and Dr. Walker and, and uh, Dr. Womack. Uh, next week, we'll have uh, two ambassadors and two PhDs uh, talking about the, the topics of the week. So we're working hard to bring you uh, great programs, and hopefully you'll be able to uh, support us with uh, membership or a, a gift in, uh, in what we're doing. Okay, uh, onward and upward, uh, we're going to head towards uh, our fourth topic, which is uh, called the October Surprise. And uh, that's that's not your birthday, Dick, I, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, the idea of October surprises uh, stems, stems back uh, probably even before the uh, the Reagan uh, case in 1980, uh, but that's um, sort of the conventional wisdom of where we got October surprise from, and that deals with a case where the uh, the Iranian hostages being held in Tehran uh, for almost a year at that point when the election was coming up, there was concern on both sides of the uh, the aisle, both. Uh, Mr. Reagan, who was uh, the Republican nominee for the presidency, and uh, President Carter, who had been in office in 76 and was the president during this Iranian hostage deal. Uh, the Reagan camp was worried that uh, Carter would, would uh, make an arrangement in October just before the election to get the hostages back, and that might tip the election. And on the other side, there was concern that the Reagan administration was secretly dealing with Iran to have the Iranians hold on to the hostages beyond the uh, date of the election so that uh, uh, Reagan would not uh, be uh, impacted by a release of the hostages. And at the time, um, Breck, you, you might uh, recall the details. There were, I believe there were negotiations going on with Algeria 
Algeria was the the go-between with Iran and the United States to get the hostages back. So um, the uh, the year-long crisis was coming to a head then. And there have been a couple of books, most notably by uh, Gary Sick, uh, who was on the National Security Council and was involved in in all the negotiations and and uh, guidance from uh, from the White House. It's uh, most recently been used in a book called October Surprise, dealing with um, the 2016 election and domestic issues. So we won't get too much into that, but just the uh, the phrase October Surprise uh, goes back to uh, relating to something that one of the parties might do uh, to tip the election. Uh, in the case of McGovern and Nixon in 72, um, Henry Kissinger was uh, said to uh, have told the press just before the election that peace was at hand. And this was the peace negotiations with um, Vietnam over the Vietnam War. We were negotiating in Paris and supposedly uh, Secretary of State Kissinger uh, sought to tip the balance of the McGovern versus Nixon, Nixon election um, by uh, uh, suggesting that uh, there would be uh, peace uh, from the long Vietnam War at that point. We already talked about Carter versus uh, Reagan. In 2000, the Gore versus Bush uh, campaign, there was concerns at the end of the uh, campaign in October of 2000 that the uh, news of a uh, arrest of Mr. Bush for drunk driving might uh, impact the election. And some insiders saw that the uh, thought that the, the Gore campaign may have uh, had that in opposition research and leaked it at the end. Uh, the Kerry Bush uh, campaign, there were a, a number of allegations uh, back and forth um, to uh, to try to to tip the balance there. And uh, I, I think you know, you know we we remember uh, the swift boating. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, political mayhem that goes on in uh, opposition uh, research. But there was also uh, reports that uh, the Bush administration was using its influence with uh, the uh, Saudi Arabian ambassador Bandar bin Sultan al Saud uh, to uh, have an impact on the price of oil, uh, changing the price at the gas pump and, and making, uh, making the economy uh, more of an issue. So there's uh, a lot of uh, political intrigue that uh, has gone back and forth uh, in these matters. Uh, uh, any of you guys want to comment on the, the, the history of this before we get into what the, uh, the potential uh, future uh, October 2020 surprises could be? I'd make one quick mention on the situation in Iran that you mentioned during the Carter administration. Uh, relations between Carter and the Iranian authorities had deteriorated so much that, as I recall, they boarded the hostages. They had a deal to let them go. They boarded the hostages on the airplane. The Iranians did, but they didn't let that plane take off until Reagan had formally uh, taken his oath of office and was uh, installed in office because they didn't want Carter to be able to claim credit that it happened on his watch. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Okay, so we're going to take a look at uh, what might be out there uh, this October in, in terms of uh, October surprises. And I think probably the, the obvious case would be Iran. And um, uh, it's kind of ironic that we're still dealing with Iran after uh, all these years uh, from the uh, 1980 election up till today, then the, the hostages, and now the maximum pressure campaign uh, that the United States has, uh, has brought against Iran 
um, were concerned about the, their development of nuclear weapons, um, development of uh, fissile material in their nuclear plants. And uh, that uh, follows the cancellation by the United States of our role in the Iran nuclear agreement. It's still in effect by the other signers of uh, the agreement, but uh, the United States uh, left that and we are uh, exerting maximum pressure in terms of sanctions uh, and other behaviors towards uh, towards Iraq, excuse me, Iran. And as we discussed last week, there's been a, a recent series of uh, attacks on Iranian installations, including their centrifuge plant at Natanz and some uh, weapons facilities and, and other facilities, chemical plants and so forth. The, uh, the conventional wisdom is that Israel might be uh, involved in some of these attacks. And the thought being that um, Prime Minister Netanyahu sees the likelihood that there could be a change in administrations in the United States and may be looking to provoke Iran into doing something that would uh, bring a United States response. So uh, be watching the news between now and October. <laughs> Uh, to see if Iran and the United States and Israel becomes uh, a, uh, an October surprise. Uh, there's always the possibility that North Korea could be a, uh, a surprise. They're, they continue to, to build their nuclear weapons program despite the, uh, the meetings, the summit meetings that President Trump and uh, Chairman uh, Kim Jong-un had in Singapore and Hanoi. Uh, they've continued uh, missile developments. They're they're building their nuclear weapons stockpile, so that uh, that's something that we have to keep an eye on as well, and and how the United States reacts to a lack of progress in denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Venezuela, there's increasing pressure on President Maduro. Uh, we recently saw Iran uh, sending tankers with gasoline to Venezuela to uh, to boost up the Iranian uh, the Venezuelan. Uh, economy, uh, the United States has responded by sanctioning uh, the flag vessels of the nations that uh, could be uh, engaging in uh, the petroleum business with uh, Venezuela. So we're, we're uh, ratcheting up pressure in Venezuela and the United States is committed to installing um, or seeing the installation of a new uh, president replacing uh, President Maduro. And uh, lastly, in the, in the black swans of October surprises, uh, the South China Sea, and, and you've probably followed here on the news review that we've talked about the South China Sea, uh, the militarization of islands in the South China Sea, and the United States uh, pushback uh, in that region. And of course, uh, there are others that, uh, that could pop up uh, at a moment's notice. Uh, lots of things going on in the world. Um, Dick, I think we have a, a little bit less stable world than uh, perhaps uh, four, eight, 12 years ago. Yeah, I think that, that your point that there's a lot that could go on. Some of it is, is totally out of control. There could be some kind of a natural disaster which would impact adversely on, on how we deal with our elections. We're going to have the uh, result of COVID on the elections, which is how do people vote and where do they vote? Russia could ramp up or ramp down what it's doing in Ukraine uh, at, its, or at its will, depending on how it thinks things could go. Um, it is not beyond the realm of possibility that the Chinese might say, well, as bad as he is, Trump is going to be better than the other guy. And so they'll cut a deal. and Maybe we could get a little incipient trade deal coming in October with the Chinese. Um, Huawei is, is out there. 
of something happening in South America. We got the border and immigration. There are all sorts of things that people can tinker and play with. So buckle your seatbelts, boys and girls. Another caravan from the uh, the Triangle in Central America. That could be. Uh, well, yeah. we're putting the pressure big time on Mexico to make sure that doesn't happen. So I don't yeah. know if that, but it's theoretical, yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'll just uh, mention to uh, our attendees today, please uh, get your questions in the, uh, the chat queue or the Q&A queue. Uh, we'll be watching both for your questions at the end here. And we're gonna uh, turn to uh, topic five. Uh, Breck, you've got the, the lead on this, the item that we started last week, a conversation. Right, as Pat said, we did start uh, discussing this article, that a uh, long article, 45 pages that came out, it was put out by the Council of Foreign Relations called the End of the World Order. And uh, the article suggests that after World War II, uh, the world, I guess, has passed through two very different orders and we're now in the midst of a third ordering of world affairs or international relations that is still underway. And the first world order uh, post-World War II was the Cold War. The world was bipolar, split into American and Soviet camps, that uh, there was a nuclear balance of power that kept the peace, mostly at least, along with a sort of a shared understanding as to what was legitimate behavior and what was out of line, out of bounds, and uh, that you know nations generally followed those bumpers, so to speak. And then the second ordering followed the collapse of the Soviet Union, and this was uh, beginning in 1990 and lasting for probably uh, one to two decades, but this was a US-led world order where it seemed like Western ideals of democracy and free markets were flourishing globally. Uh, one historian called it the end of history, so to speak, because things were gonna work out so well, and it uh, from a Western perspective anyway, and it was backed by the immense military and economic power of the United States, and certainly the high point was perhaps the first Iraq war over Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, where almost the entire world followed the U.S. lead in successfully opposing Saddam Hussein's aggression, which was considered by almost everyone way outside what was an acceptable global norm. And now we're in this third, third phase where global norms seem to be diminishing. There are more aggressive authoritarian governments. There's the rise of populism in the West, uh, the balance of power and a global consensus over what is acceptable international behavior seems to be uh, fading. And the question I wanted to raise today for our group is, uh, is this, why did the new world order envisioned by first, I think it's fair to say George H.W. Bush, and his administration, people like Brent Scowcroft, why did the world order envisioned by Bush and Clinton, the Clinton administration, the one that followed the demise of the Soviet Union and was centered on US leadership, why did that world order fail? And All so, right. Yeah, Pat, are you or, or Chuck or uh, Dick want to weigh in on that? Go, Pat. Well, um... I, I think it might have been over op, overly optimistic that uh, sim simply the uh, uh, the the closeout of the uh, enterprise known as the Soviet Union might have given uh, Mr. Bush, um, you know, and, and and there was a great consensus in the world that that the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq was was a bridge too far. But I don't think that erased the uh, tensions between the Russian Federation and uh, and the West. Uh, which probably attributed to the initial disruption 
of the, uh, as, as Bush envisioned it, the, the new world order. Um, for a time there, the, uh, the Russians and the Americans uh, got along very well, but the Russians were in a uh, inferior position and still were uh, a nuclear power and, and they deserved to be um, reckoned with in terms of national security issues, still a member of the National of the uh, Security Council of the United Nations. Uh, so they still exercise power on the world stage. And, you know, we, we see in the history of, uh, of President Putin, the uh, resurgence of, of Russian nationalism, which may have been beaten down in the 90s, but it came roaring back with the, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, moves in, into Georgia and now Ukraine, uh, threatening the, the Baltic states, uh, pressuring uh, states that uh, have joined uh, NATO. It's it's uh, it's really. I don't think the Russian nationalism ever disappeared. I think it uh, was just below the surface as the post-Soviet Union Russia uh, reoriented itself. I also think that uh, in terms of the rise of China, uh, for a time China was uh, uh, not as aggressive in rhetoric or behavior as they've been in the last four or five years. South China Sea. Uh, expansion of, uh, of global commerce. Um, there, uh, you know, we had last week we discussed the approach of Russia and China as being um, opposite the American approach to humanitarian uh, conditions in the world and, yeah, and their uh, balance of power, people, old world sovereignty. Don't yeah, me, I'll yeah. do what I want to do, people. Yeah, I think the point last week was China and, and Russia. Uh, are defending what uh, is called the Westphalian 19th century model of world order organized around a balance of power and spheres of influence. And the United States uh, has a model of uh, humanitarian intervention, democracy promotion, strengthened alliances, and oppositions to spheres so of influence. we did have a model like that. I don't know that we have it now, Pat. Yeah, so I think to, to Breck's question, um, we just... I don't think that we ever really had a new world order. I think we had a, a faux glimpse of uh, a time of of, of quiet uh, as competing. You know, we're now we 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 went through a phase of uh, counterterrorism policy as uh, leading American foreign policy, and we're now into uh, global state uh, or great state competition. Uh, and I, I think that's just been building and and uh, was in the shadows during the era of the new world order. So my, my experience is that professors who ask questions usually have an answer to their <laughs> Well, no, not really. I mean, Come I, on. <laughs> I agree with Pat on the uh, China and Russia, Russian situation. I think that uh, international terrorism uh, and particularly 9-11 aftermath took our- it Changed our whole, a whole way of dealing with the world. Yeah, we became very uh, narrowly focused at that point, and I think some larger issues maybe we didn't uh, deal with as promptly or as thoughtfully as we uh, might have. I also think that in uh, both the Obama and uh, Trump administrations uh, pulled back uh, in terms of American leadership in the world. They put, pulled back on that for different reasons, but uh, I think that not having, and we've talked about this before, but having the United States take a back seat on some major international issues, uh, I think does not promote a stable world order. In fact, I would argue 
that the whole Trump orientation of America first is antithetical to the idea of a stable world, world order and is contrary to everything that Democrat and Republican diplomats throughout the Cold War felt was necessary to maintain uh, a stable world order, which in particular meant alliances are so important that we ought to be willing to sacrifice as the United States to keep those alliances strong and intact because in the long run, they'll benefit us. And I think we've abandoned that idea, at least in this administration. I think you're spot on, Breck. I, I, think I, I was in, in Bolivia in 1991, and I remember the Chinese had an embassy there, and I established a good relationship with the Chinese ambassador. The Russians had a, well, it was the Soviets had an embassy there, and then the, the transition to the to Russian Federation. But the guy that was there who was the former ambassador of the Soviet Union uh, was a hardcore old communist guy. But he and I, he liked to drink a lot of vodka. I didn't drink a lot of vodka, but we we spent some time together. And he was totally uh, at at odds ends. What's going to happen to my country? What's going to happen to me? You know, he's got this embassy. Does is the money supply show up? How does he pay people? What all these kinds of questions? And you know, he was looking to me. Another time, the United States has such a big profile. Um, back, I think it was '92 there was a terrorist attack against the Israeli embassy in Argentina. And the Israeli ambassador in Bolivia knocked on the door and we basically turned over everything we could turn over to make sure that his security was safe. So the, the idea that the United States was the leader of all these kinds of things was very much extant at that time. I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, I, I think there was a, an, uh, inter, um, an interim period where after the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, we, we did enjoy that level of leadership that you talked about. And, and there was, uh, I don't think it was a new world order. I, I, I would prefer a different name, a different world order. Um, well, it wasn't bipolar, Pat. I mean, it, right. It, it, there was a War, there was a vacuum that that we we were. Cold War determined everything back in there. You were either on yeah. their side or our side. It was very hard to be unaligned. There was an unaligned movement, but it was tough being out there in that in that way. And then all of a sudden, the enemy goes away, and yeah. we're the predominant power in every aspect of power. And part of the thing, as you can look at, is that we didn't manage that as well as we should have. Yeah. I mean, we could have reached out more to the former Soviet Union and to Russia and to help them with things. We kind of walked away from them in, in many respects during that transition period. So the world goes on. And right now, I think we're in another transition period, Breck, where COVID is going to change the world markedly and forever. Yep. And we'll see how we come out of there. But right now, the, I, I do not like to see the let's go it alone America style. And it's not in our long-term national interest and in our foreign policy interest to, to not have allies or not saying we're going to do everything we can to do it together with everybody else. Well, I think there's two pieces here in, in the breakdown of the new world order, and I would say they're they're Russia and China, and we explored that a little bit last week. But uh, Breck, what what do you think of the notion that uh, post-Soviet uh, collapse, that the United States pushed the uh, expansion of NATO too far and too hard, and uh, any Russians that were looking to be 
uh, cooperative with the West got their, their backs up. Yeah, and at least what I have, uh, I think you're right. I think that Putin was uh, significantly motivated by the U.S. continuing despite uh, alleged promises uh, at the time that the Soviet Union came apart uh, from the U.S. government even, that uh, we would not bring Eastern Europe uh, into NATO. And there's, I guess, differing versions of what was said and what wasn't said. But uh, Ukraine was kind of, when there were conversations about the possibility of Ukraine becoming part of NATO, uh, that was probably uh, a last straw from Putin's perspective and probably provoked perhaps the uh, annexation of Crimea. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you, uh, if we hadn't put a protective net around much of Eastern Europe and certainly the Baltic countries, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened. If Putin had come to power, uh, uh, as he did, uh, those people would probably not be nearly as well off as they seem to be today, at least. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Oh, I, I think it was. Uh, I think uh, our current situation is is attributable to some extent in the reaction to the expansion of NATO. Uh, but you know, you you never know what would have you know the big if if we hadn't expanded NATO, would uh, the Russian Federation, after they regained their footing post Soviet Union collapse, would they have uh, sought to reincorporate Eastern Europe into their sphere of influence? Well, my my big dream was to somehow work to ensure that Russia would see itself in its best interest to become a part of NATO, a strategic alliance within Europe, and then they make the commitment to Europe. They're not just sort of, well, we're, sometimes we're Europe and sometimes we're not, and we've got that great plane that goes through Poland and all of our enemies come marching in through there, so we have to protect ourselves. I think my dream world would have been that Russia saw it in its long-term national interest to become part of NATO, which was basically a United States of Europe with the big brother over there across the sea available yeah. if we need him. Well, that, that, o that offer was made. There was some conversation about that. It just didn't happen. Chuck, I, I know you, you've, um, you've represented the, world, the Tennessee World Affairs Council, as, as did I, with a delegation visit to Beijing and other cities in China uh, in the last, I went, I think, five years ago, and you were a couple of years earlier than that. And my uh, takeaway on, on China uh, from that visit and, and subsequent uh, readings um, is, is that uh, China was uh, rebuilding while the United States was chasing Osama bin Laden around the world and and investing blood and treasure in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, and they were watching all that going on and building. Uh, I remember the first time I went from the Beijing airport to the hotel downtown, the, the miles and miles of skyscrapers and apartment blocks and, and just a, a fantastical uh, economic boom. Uh, and then somewhere in the last five, six, seven years, they've, uh, found themselves on the world stage in, in more expansive ways. And I don't know if you had any uh, conversations at the foreign ministry or any of the other stops you might have made. Uh, but I, I found that the, the rhetoric was increasingly uh, tense towards the United States. Um, I can remember having a, a pretty interesting conversation with our delegation at the foreign ministry 
which I didn't, uh, I, I probably wouldn't have counted among one of the most uh, high-minded examples of diplomatic the gray behavior. wolf's gone after you, Pat, right? <laughs> yeah. Gray wolf's out there. Yeah, it was. It was. It was definitely a wolf situation. But the, you know, now you look at uh, this past Sunday, the the Chinese ambassador to the United States on the Fareed Zakaria show. He said, "The United States just has to learn to accept that China is uh, an actor on the world stage." And I, I think the United States recognizes that, and and uh, we uh, sought uh, and continue to seek. Uh, trade agreements and uh, you know there's going to be some I don't know if it's the uh, Thucydides trap or, or not Dick but uh, there's going to be some friction as as they look to expand their influence in in Asia and, and uh, the Belt and Road and the, the String of Pearls and all the other uh, economic expansion that's that's going to necessarily involve uh, military activity. We see a, a 25 year strategic agreement with Iran that uh, includes military uh, activities in the Persian Gulf. So, um, Breck, there's your new world order. I, I, you know, it's kind of screwed up. Well, we'll have one more segment on it next week, if that's okay, to talk about uh, where should the United States go from here. Yep, we, we I mean, sure that report will. is very good. I would, I would, you know, I guess you could go to the Council on Foreign Relations and, and Google it and, and find it. It's, you know, it's uh, both descriptive and prescriptive. And uh, they come up with about 15 different things that they argue the United States should do and do differently than what we've done in the past. So get a hold of it. And there's more to talk about next week. Yeah, I, uh, I would recommend uh, taking a look at that for uh, students of uh, American foreign policy or uh, people who uh, want to be uh, better informed. It's uh, the end of the world order uh, of, of world order, not the world order, and American foreign policy by uh, Robert D. Blackwill. Uh, he's the Henry Kissinger Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy at CFR and Thomas Wright Senior Fellow, Brookings Institution. It's on the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR.org website. It's their special report number 86 of May 2020. So take a look at that and uh, join us for the discussion next week. And now we turn to uh, Breck to uh, close us out with the weekly quiz result. Right, again, the question was, uh, as you can see here, an advisory published by the UK National Cybersecurity Center warns of activity by a hacking group targeting US, UK, and Canadian coronavirus vaccine research organizations. The APT29 hackers, which were tied to 2000, in 2016 US election interference, are linked to this country's intelligence agency. And the answer uh, there you can see is C, no surprise, Russia. All right. Well, that's uh, that's going on. There was um, well, there's there's plenty of reports on uh, on hacking. The uh, Secretary of State had a, a comment on uh, hacking today, and in, in his uh, press appearance with the British Foreign Minister. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of things out there. Uh, that does it for us. I would remind everybody that tonight we have our Global Nashville with Carl Dean program. He'll be talking with Bob Rolf, who is the Commissioner of the Tennessee Economic and Community. Uh, development uh, organization, the state of Tennessee, and they'll be talking about the economic development, uh, the global implications uh, here in Nashville and, and around the state. Uh, next week, uh, we'll have another re news review. Uh, we'll be welcoming as our guest host, Ambassador uh, Corville, 
who uh, was the United States ambassador to the African Union. I don't know if she was there when the Chinese hacked the uh, the headquarters, but uh, we can we can ask that and many other questions. And we'll also be joined by Tennessee World Affairs Council board member, Dr. Susan Haynes from Lipscomb University. Uh, she is a uh, China expert, and uh, we will welcome uh, those two to our ranks as as guest uh, hosts. And for now, we uh, uh, would like to thank uh, Dr. Chuck Womack for joining us today. Chuck, it was a pleasure having you with us. Uh, we in enjoyed uh, looking at your your owl there. That uh, That's quite an attractive feature. Um, and uh, we look forward to, to having you back with us uh, for a future program. And uh, that's it for the news review today. Uh, everybody uh, be safe. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>